The first part of the reading I want to read is from um, Exodus chapter 35, and it's verses 1 to 9. So Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. That's just a little flavor of where we've got to. So, piecing our journey up to now as we've worked through this book of Exodus, if you remember, we see God's people, the Hebrew people, are captive in Egypt. They enter into Egypt freely and are actually saved by entering into Egypt. If we go back, way back to Joseph and his brothers who are dying of famine, 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 they come to Egypt and uh, under the care of Joseph are preserved, and they flourish. And in that flourishing, they become a threat and end up in captivity, effectively, slaves of the Egyptians. They are God's people held captive. And God has another purpose for His people. And He is not going to be thwarted by the greatest empire that the world had seen to that point in history, which is an incredible thought, isn't it? We travel to Egypt, we look at the artifacts in the museums in London and all around the world, we see the breathtaking grandeur of Egypt, and then we read that God was triumphant for His people against that nation to release His people. In the real world, in the real events of history, God refreshed His people from their slavery. They... they, were released in an incredible, miraculous way, which was undeniable. And then over the past few weeks, what we've seen is their journey has been one of peaks and troughs, moments of encouragement, and then moments of rejection where they become unfaithful to the point where where Moses is gathering instructions from God for the future of his people to make them a nation, they are reverting to the ways of Egypt and creating a physical representation of a golden calf for them to worship. It's an incredible, tragic turnaround. But that's where we've got to. That's where we got to last week. If you didn't listen to last week, if you weren't here, I really want to encourage you to listen to last week on the subject of idolatry. Excellent, breathtaking stuff, really helpful. Because sometimes we can think about idolatry and we think about bowing down in front of a golden calf the way the Israelites did, and we think, I am a million miles away from that. I am not idolatrous. And yet the heart and the spirit of what they did is prevalent in our heart and spirit today. 
And so we're in danger of all of the same, reverting back to the way it was, our security somewhere else other than in the God who saves us. We find ourselves now, in the, I guess, with a question mark. Is it possible that in the light of that salvation and yet that breathtaking rebellion, is it possible that the idea of God and His people being united is going to be realized? Is that still possible or have they blown it? Well, what we see here over the next chapters and it opens up with these few verses, is Moses begins the instruction to the people of building a tabernacle. I guess you would say a mobile temple. That's the way you would describe it, a mobile temple. Something that could be put up. It's effectively a tent construction that is representative of a temple and God's dwelling. That is great news that that's the instructions that we're reading. Because in the light of the rebellion, you would anticipate the possibility that the way to relationship with God has been thwarted by our failings. Let's put ourselves in, let's wear our Hebrew sandals this afternoon. That's where they've got to. But what we actually see is God continues on the journey of establishing relationship with his people and instructing Moses to begin the construction of a temple. So the first thing, and, and what we actually see is he's, he's saying to them, build something. Buildings say things. I, I don't, I'm trying to remember, I'm, I'll apologize in advance if I've failed to remember, but I don't think anybody's an architect. I'm not an architect. So I'm treading on dodgy ground here. But buildings say things. They, they, they speak a language. The shape, the construction, the way that they are built talks about certain things. We're, in a few, an hour or so, there's going to be an amazing football match, an incredible place, but there's nothing, I'll guarantee you now, there is no football stadium in the whole world like Anfield. Anfield is an amazing place, but you know, any, any, take any football stadium, take any sports stadium, they are constructed to say something, aren't they? Everybody looks in one direction. Every single seat in the stadium is pointed in one direction. Why? Because it is made to say something. It's made to say the most important part is down there. That's the focus of your attention. You would never build a, a stadium and say, I tell you what, let's put this row of seats facing backwards so that they can chat to the people behind. Wouldn't happen. Wouldn't do it because buildings are constructed to say things. You can be really kind of lowbrow and talk about football stadia or you can go a little bit highbrow and become fairly philosophical. Michel Foucault, in Discipline and Punishment, The Birth of the Prison, he wrote about the way in which prisons were constructed in Victorian Britain to say things. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating, if you're into kind, that kind of stuff. I, I, I loved it. It was great reading it. And the way he argues his point, if you think it's strange ways, or is it Wormwood Scrubs, one of the two, that, that there's a kind of a central 
observational point, and all of the rest of the prison is kind of off that central point, like a star shape. And everything is about the power and the control and the authority is in the center. You out there, you are submissive to this central power. There was a language of the prison. That's great. uh, Wake up. (laughs) Some people are like, I'm not bothered about prisons. I think it's fantastic that we can see the language of construction. Actually, when we see these next chapters unfolding, we see that Michel Foucault did not discover something amazing. It went right the way back to the way it has always been, and God uses our human understanding of the language of shape and the language of building and the language of space to say things. That's what the tabernacle is all about. It's about God saying something in physical space. Isn't that fantastic? God says things by the construction. God says things by the temple that was then built as a result of the tabernacle that was originally built. They were on a journey now. We're seeing something. So, the start of this construction is is about Moses speaking to the people and saying, right, we're on to something now. We're into the next phase and we're going to build something. So effectively what he says to them in this little bit of the text here, he says to the people, anyone who is willing, I want you to gather together offerings and bring them so that we can start the construction of the temple. What is he saying to them? He's saying to them, this construction that we're making, this potential building, you, you are to come together, we are to come together, and we are to take part in the construction of it. We're going to invest ourselves in it. Because, because that's what we do when we, when we build something. We don't build it and then do nothing with it. We build it and then become part of it. it a building is a statement of something. This room... Right now, the way it's laid out is a statement of something. It's a statement of us gathering together. We've just moved house this week. Wow, what a job. That, that is, it's great. It's fantastic. It's hard work and it's wonderful and all the rest of it. But we had a, we had a bit of a gathering and family around yesterday afternoon and something struck me. What made that house a home was not the building that had been done. It was the location that created the possibility of relationship, about being together in this space that we've created. That's what God is saying to the people. He's saying, here's a space to create for the possibility of my relationship and dwelling with you, but the way that you are going to be part of that is by investing in it. Bring your offerings. Look at what they were to bring. All sorts of things. Things which are surprising for people who have just left Egypt on on the face of it. 
How would they have these valuable possessions? It carries on and there's all sorts of other things that they bring. Gold and silver and all. In fact, the residue, I guess, of what they hadn't used for the golden calf, which was probably melted down to then use the gold for a helpful purpose. They are to gather this stuff together from the very things which they were given as they left Egypt. You remember the way it worked when they remarkably left Egypt. The Egyptians turned to them and they said, look, we don't want you here any, anymore. And what's more, take all this stuff. Go away. Not as slaves, penniless slaves, but as rich people. It was a remarkable turnaround. From rags to riches is the literal event that took place in the Exodus. They went away with all sorts of stuff. And the, what God is saying to them is, when you invest in this building, I want you to think about how you've got it and how you're going to use it. That's quite simply the task that's going on here. That's the moment of opportunity. I want you to, you are invited. You see the, word, the language that Moses says? Everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord. This isn't some sort of imposed, de demanded tax. This is God saying, here's the, here's the moment. I want you to think about what you've got. I want you to think about how you got it. And I want to invite you now to decide whether you are going to invest some of that in forging a place for relationship with me. You know, the question framed in that way should only have one answer, shouldn't it? Of course we're going to do that. Because what we received was not really ours to have in the first place. It was given to us by God. God gave this to us in a remarkable way. And now he's saying, out of your riches, invest in building a location for relationship with me. What better investment could you make? What better use of what you've been given by God could you possibly make than using that to create a space with the possibility of even deeper relationship with God? It's a no-brainer. If you are spiritually and sensitively switched on to that connection, that what I have received is given by God in the first place, and therefore for me to use it in a way which enhances my relationship with God is just what I would want to do. It is the reversal of idolatry, where those riches become what I worship, and God says, no, use those riches to worship me. Which is it going to be? Where's your relationship? I invite you, anyone who is willing... I invite you to do this. So in a sense, we are not giving God our possessions. We are stewarding what God possesses and has entrusted to us anyway. Do you know what? I was thinking, out of a text like this, which seems so, how, how can we possibly 
how can we possibly make anything of this in the 21st century? And yet, when we frame it like that, it just shouts out, doesn't it? How do you and I think about our possessions? I think most of us in 21st century Western, the Western world, we think about our possessions as ours because that's what we have earned. And therefore, this is mine. And, and we miss completely the idea that we've been granted this possession. The, the whole of the world belongs to God. Everything that belongs to God. It's really important to get a grip on that. Everything belongs to God in the first place. You know, there's that, that kind of old adage, there's no pockets in shrouds. You can't take anything with you. Everything that you leave behind will only ever be left in the possession of God, ultimately. And when we get to see that, when we get to realize that I am granted this by God's grace and by God's mercy, I am given what I have been given by God's goodness, do I see it as mine? Where I tease out a little bit and say, yeah, I'm now going to give that to God. Or do I say, it's all His. How can I use this to enhance my relationship with Him? How can this be used in a way which builds my, my relationship with God? How do I invest in the community of God's people? How have we got our careers? How have we got our gifts? How have we got our skills? How have we got our abilities? Where have they come from? I went to university. Actually, I didn't. <laughs> didn't go full time. But many of us would say, I went to university. I worked really hard. Committed, committed so many hours. I earned that. <laughs> do you think you've got the ability to do that just in your own strength? Or is that ability to even think in the way that God has granted you the ability and the gift to think a gift of God in the first place? This is the invitation that God's people have. Think about your wealth and think about the possibility of relationship. And then just to underline it, we then move to our next little bit of the reading, uh, Exodus chapter 35. Verse 30 to 35. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all the kinds of skills to make artistic designs for working gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahasuerus, whatever his name is, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skills to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in purple, in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. 
Do you know what? I find that little bit of text absolutely breathtaking. It's breathtaking. It's a most amazing section. I, I just want to think, Bezalel and Aholiab, their names have gone down in world history as the craftsmen of the tabernacle. I, I want to know, Bezalel, what, what was your life like? What did you do in Egypt? Were you a slave in a factory producing amulets for the Egyptian burials? Were you making little gold artifacts for the temples? Were your skills back there being used for all of those kind of things? How did you get those skills back in Egypt? Did you get those skills from an Egyptian teacher? No. Well, you might have done, or you might have thought you did. But look what it says here. Those skills have been given to you by God. God has given you the ability. The ability to craft things. That is a God-given gift. I love Aholiab. He has been given an amazing ability to teach people. That is a God-given gift. You know the ability when somebody comes alongside you, I don't know what you're like, I tend to be a little bit short, not the most patient with, with teaching stuff. Other people have this incredible ability. I listen to them explain something, a task, and they seem to do it in such a simple way that I think, wow, I, 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 I could do that now. I couldn't do it before, but I can do it because they've explained it. They are brilliant at it. Where has that gift come from? That gift has come from God. But there is an even more breathtaking perspective, which moves it out of the simple building of the tabernacle, the simple skill to make things for the tabernacle, into something even more breathtaking, I think. Look at what it says in verse 31. He has filled him with the Spirit of God. Do you know where that is previously used? Once, up to this point. That phrase, Spirit of God, is previously used when God creates the heaven and the earth. Wow. So this creative capability is a reflection again of what was back there. And when God said to Adam and to Eve, go and fill the earth, take over the earth with creative capability, subdue it, not with power and force, but make it a beautiful place. That is your job. That's the work that you are to do. You are gifted and you are skilled to do this. I've given you the gift to do this. I've granted you the requirement by my edict at creation. That is what you are to do. And it reflects again at this point where God says to Basilet, Bas yeah, and the other guy, I want you to go and I want you to build amazing things and recreate that, that whole creation ordinance. I want to ask you, 
What do you think about your work? How do you frame your work? Is work something that I do and then I jump out of work and I, I go and do my Christian stuff? That is a million miles away from the way God would have us think. Work is seen here. Your gifts, your skills, your abilities are redemptive qualities for this world. Go and build amazing bridges. Go and do amazing mathematics. Go and redeem the world with the work that you do. The real things that you do, day in and day out. Redeem the world with it. Do beautiful things. Do amazing things to the glory of God with the gifts that God has given you, which at times are going to be used in an Egyptian amulet manufacturing factory, but they're the same gifts given by God, and at times they're going to be given directly and clearly and understandably in the service of God. But those times are few and far between. Hazalel and Aholiab did not build tabernacles for the rest of their lives. They went back to building chairs and tables and ordinary things. And they did that by the same skills that God had given them to build the tabernacle as to build Egyptian amulets. And you say, hang on a sec. The work that I do, I know that at times I am corrupted in the things that I have to do. My, the, my work environment, at times, there are things that I have to do which don't seem as though I am bringing glory to God. I don't know what you do. I, I, build, I build bits that make nuclear arms. <laughs> How can I possibly bring glory to God in that? Do you know, there's, there's one little incident, I think, which gives a little window. Naaman, man in the Old Testament, he was, he was a very high authority. And he gets leprosy, and he goes to the prophet, and he's remarkably cured. And the prophet effectively says to him, go and live your life now, bringing glory to God. And this little moment where it, it always hit me since I first read it, he said this, there's going to be times when I'm going to have to go in with my master and I support him. I imagine the king was an older king and he goes into, an old into a pagan temple as part of his job and in that pagan temple, he says, there's going to be times when when my master bows, I'm going to have to bow. And imagine that. I now believe in this living God, but I'm going to end up in a pagan temple. And when my master bows, because I'm holding his arm and supporting him, I'm going to end up bowing. So please do not count this against me, he says. I think that is just a little window into how we do redemptive work in this world when the world is a mess and not seeking to glorify God. There are moments when we might have to seem to bow in a particular direction, but the rest of the time we're seeking to do everything to the glory of God. This, th this little section, it's about work. 
It's about work. It's about you and me tomorrow morning getting up, going doing our job and saying, how am I going to work to bring glory to God? How am I going to redeem this world as I write out a care plan? How am I going to redeem the world as I stand in front of a class? How am I going to redeem the world as I sit behind the counter and I hand over cash to the next customer who walks in through the door? They're the kind of things which transforms our idea of our faith in this God from something that I do in a little silo to something that fills the whole of my life. Work and the glory of God. So, point one, astounding significance of human creativity. Point two, this is going to be really quick, the centrality of covenant. Let's read again. Next little bit is chapter 37, 1 to 5. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold both inside and out and made a gold mounting around it. He cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet. With two rings on one side and two rings on the other, then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he inserted the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. That's all we're going to look at. There's all sorts of things that are built for the ark, uh, for the tabernacle. Amazing things, but we're just going to focus on this one. I'm going to focus on it for a reason. We're in previous section, if you were with us for royal blood, you know all about the altar. The altar is, there's an altar built for the tabernacle. There's all sorts of things that are built for the tabernacle. But right at the center of the tabernacle is this item, the ark. Comes the ark of the covenant. Various things at various times are described as being kept in the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod, pot of manna, stone tablets, things that go into this, into this Ark and are carried around. So I want to ask a question, how are we not drifting back to just another temple like Egypt? Why is this temple different to the temples in Egypt? And why is this thing that's right in the center not just an artifact of the kind of significance that makes Indiana Jones famous. Because it's not about the artifact. It's about what the artifact says. We haven't found the Ark of the Covenant. I don't actually believe we ever will. I don't believe we ever will if some remarkable change in archaeology discovers the Ark at some point. So be it, that's fine, it's not going to knock my theology, but right at the moment, my mind is this, I don't think the ark will ever be found, because it's not important. What's important is what it says. Here's this physical thing, and right at the very center of this construction that's built, outer tents, then inner tents, then an altar, then a, a center place, and then right in this center place goes the Ark of the Covenant. Why is that important? Because the Ark 
contains the picture of God's promise. That's what's at the center. I want you to trip back for a few minutes to Egypt and see how remarkably different this temple is to an Egyptian temple. We go into an Egyptian temple and right at the center is the altar. Pretty much every pagan temple has at the center the place of offering. That's what's there. I was uh, traveling a lot over in China years ago. Buddhist, little Buddhist shrines and then Buddhist temples all over the place. At the center is the place of offering. You bring little everywhere, four oranges and a little, little uh, pyramid, three on the bottom, one on the top, a little offering. Right at the center again and again in Egypt is the altar. It's what we bring as our offering. That is not the way the tabernacle was constructed. The altar is not at the center. <laughs> the altar is not the significant place. The altar is the place which you go to to be able to get to the promises that God has made. That is breathtakingly different. At the center is God's promise, not what we do to get to Him. Yes, of course, the altar is massively significant. But it means nothing if it isn't backed up by the promises of God. How was it that we were able to revert the problem of the golden calf? How did we reverse this issue? Why did not God not slay the people there and then? Well, in chapter 32, we read, we read this. Moses goes to God in the midst of God's anger, in the midst of God's righteous anger towards the people. And Moses says this, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will make your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Where did Moses go when the people had rebelled against God? He didn't go to, look, we'll turn it around, we'll be good, we'll make all of these offerings, and we'll appease you. He doesn't go there. He goes to what God had promised. And he says, I'll come to your promise and I'll, I'll hold you accountable to the promise that you've made. Because right at the center of the tabernacle is not an altar, it's the character of God. It's God's promise. That's what matters. That's what is everything, central, essential. If that falls apart, we've got nothing. We can't rely on anything. But Moses says, look what you promised. You said that this is how it would be. You said that you would do this. All I'm saying, God who does not deserve to hear my voice, all I'm saying is, I hold you to what you have said. I don't know about you, 
I need that kind of promise-making and promise-keeping God. And I need that kind of promise-keeping God because I am a mess. And I am way more like the kind of people who build golden calves than I am the kind of people who go up mountains and shine with a glory. I am way more a constructor of idols than I am a faithful trusting in God every moment of every day. That is what I am like. And, and I guess being honest about what I am like puts me shoulder to shoulder with you. That's where I am. How do I know I can come back? Because of God's promise. I need that. I can't survive without it. I need to believe that the God in John chapter 6 and verse 37 who says this, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. I need to know that that's the God that has made that promise to me. That when I've disappeared off in some bypath meadow, if you read Pilgrim's Progress you'll know what that is, and I've ended up in Castle, Doubting Castle, with giant despair about to crush me with his club, and I find the key of promise, the promise is that God has made promises to me. And when I feel like I have completely blown it, I know I can come back. That is what I need. Because right at the center of the tabernacle is not an altar where we bring offerings. Right at the center of the tabernacle is the promises that God has made. It's all based on His covenant promise. So I ask the question, is this as good as it gets? A temple, the promise of God present with us in this kind of figurative way. John chapter 1 and verse 14 is absolutely amazing. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He made His dwelling among us. Do you know what that word dwelling is? In the original text, it, the word is skenu. Uh, and the, the root of that word is, let me just pronounce it right, skin. It's from the root temple, sorry, tent or tabernacle. Dwelling comes from the root of the word tent or tabernacle. When John wrote those words, he connected the presence of Jesus in this world with this event back in the desert. He said, you thought that that was amazing when God said, I'll dwell with you. That was nothing. That was the prototype. It was only the preparation. It was the great pointer, the great kind of sign across the Hebrew history to point to something better, which is Jesus, who came and made 
his dwelling with us. And I close with the final text. As Moses inspects the temple, 39, 32 to 43. They've done it. So all the work on the temple, on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases, the covering of ramskins dyed red and the covering of another durable leather and the shielding curtain, the Ark of the Covenant law with its poles and the atonement cover, the table with all its articles and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its row of lamps and all its accessories and the olive oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the curtain for, for the entrance to the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, its poles and all of its utensils, the basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the ropes and tent pegs for the courtyard, all the furnishings for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting and the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when serving as priests. That's amazing, isn't it? You want to meet with God? You've got to do it according to His plan. Here's his plan finished. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded, so Moses blessed them. Here's the cliffhanger. They've built it. What's going to happen next? Is God going to be present with them? Is he going to be there? We know, without looking at the next chapter, that it must have worked out okay because Jesus became present with us.